In the enterprise world, it's way more common for folks to already have an existing data warehouse or, or data lake with some kind of you know querying abstraction sitting on top of that, you know, various Hadoop technologies or other kind of big data tech. And you don't want to, you know, you would not want to try to relocate or make a copy of all that data inside of data.world's platform. That's not a sensible thing to try to do. What you want to be able to do is connect to that data where it sits and query it in place. My name is Brian Jacob, and I'm the CTO and co-founder of Data.World. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today, how Brian Jacob created a massive ecosystem for you to maximize your data utilization. All this and more on Code Story. Brian Jacob is a family man with four kids from ages 11 downward. With a young startup and family, his hobbies have suffered some, but during the pandemic, he was able to pick back up music, specifically playing the keyboard. He's an avid reader, mostly sci-fi, and loves to play strategy board games. His family tends to play games like Puerto Rico and Ticket to Ride, which is simple enough for a six-year-old to compete. He and his co-founders have created a massive open community for data. Users can sign up for free, bring their data catalog, and analyze any data inside the ecosystem. In doing so, They've seen traction of nearly a million users in the ecosystem, along with enterprise users utilizing a private internal data ecosystem, all based in the cloud and fully integrated. This is the creation story of Data.World. Data.World is a data catalog. It's a data and metadata management platform. You know, two two important lenses to look at it through, and it kind of also relates to the history and how we got started. Primarily, it's an enterprise data management product. We sell this to large enterprises, you know, really, you know, Fortune 500 companies on down to small to mid-sized startups who have a particular interest in, you know, kind of data management. So, you know, we have customers all up and down the range, but but we really we really kind of focus on being able to maximize the utilization of your data across the broadest set of your organization. And so, large companies that have a large kind of data interested team and then smaller companies where really the whole company needs to be wired into data. And, you know, and from that point of view, folks are, look, are, are looking to, to bring in data.world to make sense of and rationalize the data assets they have, connect to all their existing data assets, understand what they mean, how they connect, and then actually provide that access out to their organization so that the whole company, the whole team can have an understanding of what data assets exist, understanding of how they connect, how they're to be used, how they're used by other folks and then be able to, to utilize those to solve problems and share the knowledge that they, they, they learn, they gain from that. In addition to this enterprise product, you know, we also offer really the exact same platform with some, you know, some, some minor changes because the problem space is slightly different out as an open platform for really anyone in the world to sign up for. That's a platform that anyone can go sign up to use for free to analyze and work on all the open data that's there. Also to bring and contribute their own data 
to the open corpus of data on there. So you know, as I said, there's about 875 or so thousand people and, you know, an open data catalog there of, you know, four or 500,000 open data sets. We organize the company as a public benefit corporation. It's not a not-for-profit. It's very much a for-profit venture-backed company. A public benefit corp is basically in almost every way just like a standard C corporation, but we bake a public benefit statement as part of the corporate charter that is explicitly allowed and in fact required to be a part of our corporate decision making. So over and above just the you know profit motive and maximizing return for shareholders, there's also a responsibility to adhere to this particular structure and ours is really around you know, accruing the benefits of this this better data management philosophy back to the way that we work with data in society, not just within the walls of, of our corporate customers. So we wanted to get that open community out there first. We really spent the first two years of the company building out that open community. It was done for two reasons. One, to kind of adhere to that, that benefit statement, but two, it was a great way to kind of go from ground zero when we started the company with, you know, no code, no product, you know, nothing at all but an idea to build the right product and to kind of get to this point of scale where we can do high velocity A-B testing of features. You know, when we want to test new features, we can release them out in controlled experiments and get really, you know, great product feedback quickly, which lets us just iterate and move much more quickly on making the product useful for folks doing data analysis than we could if we were just kind of considering the the usage of folks within the within the walls of, of our corporate customers. Let's dive into the MVP a little bit. Tell me about the MVP. How long did it take to build? What sort of tools did you use to get it off the ground? We initially kind of founded the company in September 2015, uh, and that was really at that point, it was just the four co-founders and, you know, we were off pitching and doing our initial fundraise really based on the idea and the, t and the strength of that team kind of teed up and ready to go. During that time, we built a demo and I, and I cannot stress enough, this was a demo. It, did, it was not real software. It was, you know, very, very loose, clickable demo of, you know, what could be that my co-founder John and I mostly did. And then we actually brought in a few of the folks that we were initially, we, we, we intended to hire onto the team to, you know, help flesh that out and give it a little bit more structure. We, we did that fundraise and we then, you know, launched the company properly uh, with, you know, our initial team kind of really starting in January of 2016, so kind of right at the beginning of the year. We set the goal right then of launching the product from, you know, really nothing but this demo, which had some, you know, which was a reasonable, you know, clickable screenshots almost of what it could look like in July. And so we, we kind of organize around that, you know, in six months, we're going to get this out into the world, do a beta launch and start promoting it and building up that open community. And so we did that, you know, we kind of carved the team quickly into two parts, one kind of building out the back end and one building out the, the front end of the, of the application. The company, when we started in January 2016, was maybe 12 people, about eight of whom were on the engineering side. So we were, you know, very engineering heavy because we knew we had to kind of do a lift from zero to, to something really quickly. One thing we did immediately when we started that was make every connection we could to go out and do user testing on the concepts that we were building. So everything that went into the product, even in that very first MVP, was you know something that had been 
put in front of, you know, as many users as we could get it in front of, you know, sometimes maybe only four or five folks, but often, you know, a dozen or more, we were doing many of these user sessions every week, putting in front of folks just paper wireframes and design tools, and then, you know, the real product as it started to come to be more real. You know, the founder of LinkedIn is kind of very famous for saying, if you're not embarrassed by your first effort, you launched too late. And yeah, I think that I'd say that was roughly accurate here. I think, you know, we knew that what we launched wasn't the true MVP that was really going to be useful to that community, but it was very much good enough to get it out there and start getting that quantitative feedback of hundreds and thousands of users, as opposed to just the qualitative feedback of the dozens we could reach with at a time with user testing. The product evolved very rapidly that first six months in production, the back half of 2016. So I think, you know, data.world really started to exist as a thing that looks like a thing you'd recognize even today around the beginning of 2017, around a year after we really kind of started. The core foundation that really hasn't, that it really is, is the core of what we are today had crystallized over that first year. I'm still interested in, in the MVP, and you touched on this a little bit, but I want you to dive in a little more to sort of the decisions and trade-offs you had to make in the short term and how you cope with them. And I'm looking looking more towards, you know, technical debt, building things a certain way to move fast, but knowing it's not going to last kind of thing. Um, tell me a little bit more about those and how you cope with those sorts of decisions. We tried to do, and I think we did. A, I think we did a quite good job of is identifying the right principles early on, and adhering to those, and kind of taking on debt intelligently, and you know, being able to manage that debt over time. So, we were going to really gain the leverage of the cloud. We were going to build everything, you know, kind of very cloud first, and very much embrace the ideals of. of infrastructure as code, flexibility, repeatability, scalability that we could get by you know making sure that we took on the absolute minimum amount of operational debt and operational complexity and really maximize the ability for us to kind of automate our infrastructure. We actually made those things real from the beginning. So from the beginning of the platform, we never you know, went into our AWS console and manually provisioned resources and you know, said, well, we'll automate that later. From the beginning of time, everything that's been deployed kind of in any production environment is done as code. You know, we didn't dwell for a long time on specific technology choices where we knew that we'd probably want to revisit it with more data. One example on that was is on that is like just you know the the technology we used to host all of our web services and our and our website in the early days. We made a decision pretty early on to deploy all of those things using Amazon's Elastic Beanstalk. I think we suspected at that point that wasn't really a great solution for the long haul to kind of scale up and that we'd want to move to something where we have a little bit more control and you know do some more standard containerized work. But it also let us just move very quickly with the skill set of the folks we had on staff at that moment to get things up and running. We did that, it lasted about a year or so. And then as we started kind of, you know, maturing and kind of enriching the set of services we offered, folks were like, yeah, this isn't really gonna be flexible or scalable enough for us. Let's go replace all this out. But it was replacing one set of fully automated templates for deploying that technology with another. And we were able to do kind of a clean zero downtime release, even on something major like that. And that's been a story that we've repeated a bunch of times is being able to kind of switch out technologies, you know, and, and do so with minimal impact. Another kind of interesting, interesting story along the same lines. You know, our platform is built on top of a, of a graph database. If you're if you're kind of in the you know graph database world, it's the term for it would be a large quad store, which would be a large graph of graphs where each graph is a collection of, of triples. 
And there's a number of, you know, both commercial and open source products that exist in this space. There's a number of kind of toolkits that, you know, technology toolkits that implement pieces of this problem. Something a little bit unique about what we were doing in this space, which is that we really needed to optimize for economically and performantly manage a very, very large collection of mostly very small graphs, which is not generally kind of the, the optimization that most graph databases are looking for. They're, most, they're, they're usually kind of almost doing the opposite. How do, I, how do I solve for a single very large graph and being able to kind of do deep network analytics across that? So we knew we were going to have to custom build some of the technology here. In that first you know, 12 to 18 months, we had three complete generations of that technology. We had, you know, the initial version that, you know, I personally built with one of the other engineers that was good enough to get that MVP up and running, but that we knew, you know, almost from the moment we launched it that we were going to have to do a heavy, a heavy iteration on. One of the other engineers we brought in around the six month mark kind of hit the ground running with that problem and, you know, really did a, a really impressive job taking what we did and, and, you know, clearing out a lot of the debt and re-implementing it, making something that was, you know, 10x or more scalable than what we did. And then about halfway through that project, we kind of stumbled on another technology that we uh, previously hadn't been familiar with. It was actually something that we initially looked at as really just a way to reduce the amount of disk usage we were using. And we found it actually had a lot more capabilities than that. And so almost as soon as he launched his revamp solution, we, we launched on, you know, kind of iteration three. You know, over that 12 to 18 month period, we, we completely ripped out and re-implemented the, the core storage tech that we use for any data ingested into data.world three times. The product folks, the folks kind of sitting at the front end of the site, building the user experience, building the APIs that we use to integrate with external tools, nothing ever changed from their point of view other than the system got, you know, faster, more scalable, more, more robust. So and I hear I hear you telling um, the story of the product progression, but how did you go about structuring your roadmap? How did you figure out what was the most important next thing to fix or build? Um, because I, you have the open version and then you have the enterprise version. How did you balance those needs and and um, requirements? The interviews we did, the experiments we ran around. How do we distill out the essence of what data work looks like to the hands-on practitioners actually doing, doing the work? So who are the various personas that are performing data work? We, we hypothesized and proved out that, you know, there's quite a few personas of people who interact with data that maybe aren't, you know, there's your, there's your data scientist, there's your business analyst, there's, there's the various things that, that folks kind of would, would be able to rattle off, but there's also you know, there, there's also folks who are kind of responsible, usually informally, usually this is more of a role than like a title or a position for, for managing the knowledge around data, for managing kind of the, the subject matter expertise that makes the data intelligible. The essence of what we were trying to figure out, how can we codify these things as a process that people actually do as a, like a job function that people actually are doing in ad hoc ways. And that's what leads to kind of some of this sprawl and then build software that actually looks and feels familiar to the folks doing this activity, but streamlines their work and makes it more effective and makes it better communicated to, to other folks. So that's what we spent a lot of time in that open community learning. And, and that work has mostly translated to the enterprise for, the, for a lot of those use cases. So I think as we started then going to market, 
you know, there's a couple of couple of things that shift. One is that, you know, there are business activities related to management of data that are substantially different from their counterparts in folks working with open data. And so we had to kind of do all the learning there and, and learn about those personas and, and learn what's different. There's also the notion of who are the other folks who need to interact with a platform like this from more of an administrative or a, a stewardship point of view. These are the users who they don't make up the largest numbers of your user base, but they are the folks who are managing the metadata and the rules and the governance that actually provide the leverage to everyone else using the platform. So I think if we, if we were able to use the open community to learn a lot about our end users, we needed to then go actually move into the enterprise space to start learning what additional you know features functionality do we need you know one of the big shifts that happened in the product was a heavy focus on the part of our product that manages the the network of metadata rethinking the entire product as fundamentally a data catalog and what that means really happened as we as we started to move into the enterprise space how do we collect curate enrich and, and package that, that data so that it's there to be consumed by all of the end user practitioners. You know, you're building, you're building such a massive product. This is a big thing to tackle. Um, and it's, it's so interesting. What, what are some of the biggest, you know, maybe switches or upgrades, or I won't say pivots, cause that's a, that's a big word. It's not what I mean, but what are some of the features that, that really stuck out to you that you added and that really made a big difference in the product? one that we've had you know some elements of for you know really a very long time but we focused a lot more on in the kind of enterprise era is the notion of data virtualization we we've had the the kind of conceptual space of data sets as kind of being a normalized way of looking at any collection of data and and the idea from the beginning has been the end user doesn't really care whether this data is in a data warehouse sitting in Snowflake or in, or in Redshift or is in the SQL Server database or is in an Excel spreadsheet or a CSV file or the JSON output from some SaaS API, right? That's not the important detail to me trying to actually accomplish some analytical task. The important detail is what is this data actually about? What are the facts in this data set? In the enterprise world, it's way more common for folks to already have an existing data warehouse or, or data lake with some kind of you know querying abstraction sitting on top of that through through you know various Hadoop technologies or other kind of big data tech, you know you would not want to try to relocate or make a copy of all that data inside of data.world's platform. That's not a sensible thing to try to do. What you want to be able to do is connect to that data where it sits and query it in place. The notion of building out that data virtualization has been has been a, a major major kind of effort in the enterprise era for us. You know, the, the whole end goal is that that's not really a different thing from the point of view of the end user. You don't really care whether that data has been ingested fully in our platform is under our management or whether we're connecting to that in place. So we do a lot of work on building out the technology that we need to connect into existing corporate networks that are you know not cloud based. We also acquired a company just over a year ago, a company called Capsenta which we had partnered with and helped provide some of the core, some of that virtualization technology. Uh, and ultimately what they were doing was just, you know, so aligned and so key that we ended up bringing them in house to, to make that really kind of a part of our, of our overall offering. 
we've also you know partnered with other companies that kind of help provide some of that secure networking. So this this has been a, a, a major a, a major set of functionality, and this is really what lets us get into you know in some cases the biggest the biggest companies in the world and be able to meaningfully connect to their existing large you know secure data data sources and and do that cataloging in our SaaS product. So. Let's switch over to your team. How did you build your team to, you know, to really fuel the progress at data.world? And, you know, what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses? You know, all, all four of us who co-founded it, and we're all, we're all kind of have, have been around in the Austin tech scene for, for a good long while, have, have worked as executives or founded a number of the bigger companies here. So we had, you know, we had really kind of deep and broad networks. We, we really had sat down even as, as we were doing the initial kind of fundraising pitch and said, you know, what's our dream team? If we could go out and hire the 10 or 12 people that we would want to start this company, who would they be? And, you know, we kind of sat down and, and made that list and then reached out to those folks. Almost all of them who we had on that initial list, you know, pretty much to a person, they, they all said, yes, if you go raise money and start this company, we would be in. That actually kind of really helped with the fundraise. The fact that we could go in and say, not just, hey, you know, we're well-known people who can attract some good talent, but no, here's their names. Like if you'd like to call any of these 12 people and you know talk to them about why they want to come work for this company, if you if you fund it, be our guest. And so you know initially we were able to just you know work from our network. You know, then for that I'd say for the first year we did more hiring from our network, also you know started to attract folks two degrees out in our social network. As you're early and you're hiring kind of folks who have to have to wear lots of hats and you're hiring folks who, you know, are going to have to roll up their sleeves and be hand on individual contributors. We've also very explicitly looked for folks who had entrepreneurial experience, who had been at a small startup before, so they knew what they were getting into. And folks who had some amount of leadership experience at slight, at larger scales, with our theory being that, you know, it, it would be better if you can hire as many folks who are like able to be, you know, hands-on doers today, but who can grow to be the leaders of the various functions as the company grows. To, you know, that's a hard thing to do, but to the degree you can do that, that's better because you're gonna have people, when you get to the point of scaling up where you have 50 or 100 people that are in those leadership positions who also have the DNA of the company and the context going back to the beginning. We, we, we've always kind of strived for that. And we've, I think we've done that really well. Again, most of the folks who are kind of in leadership positions have been with us for a while. But also, this is important too, we've definitely you know, brought in folks across those leadership positions as we grew who had you know, unique skills, unique talents in that, in that area. And then and lastly, just kind of on the you know, deliberate things we did kind of in recruiting, one thing that you know, is just a common truism in tech and it's true in, in Austin and, it's true, you know, and, it was, and it was true in our networks is that you know, when you're hiring, particularly in, in tech, it's very easy for companies to kind of end up looking a little more homogenous than you would like. Austin demographically is not a particularly racially diverse population. Tech always ends up magnifying those disparities. Tech is not as gender diverse as it should be. And so, you know, particularly if you look across an engineering team, it's very easy to kind of wake up one day and realize like, hey, just by hiring the best people who happened to fall into our net when we were recruiting or by looking into our networks, we we're looking, you know, way more male heavy, male centric and, you know, often way more white male centric than we'd like. You know, we, we kind of took a very deliberate look at this and saying, you know, hey, look, all the people we've hired are great people we've worked with in the past. 
but we need to actually focus on broadening our pipeline and making sure that we're finding the folks in our network who, you know, who, who kind of represent a more diverse background. We made a very deliberate and conscious effort from, you know, really, again, sometime in that first year as we were growing to say, you know, we're going to open every position more broadly. We're going to take an active effort to go out and, you know, seek to expand our, our networks that we kind of feed into our recruiting pipeline with, with more women, with more, with more people of color, you know, make that a very explicit, deliberate part of our, of our pipeline, you know, and I think, you know, the, the balance you should be trying to strike here, we're always going to hire the most qualified person who we bring in and interview for the job. And the team's always going to, you know, maintain the exact same high bar. And we're gonna we're gonna recruit and hire the best person who 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 matches the, the the job needs, but it's our job to make sure that you know the total population that we're bringing in at the front of that funnel is as diverse as possible, and to make sure that we're reaching outside of just our personal networks. We have very healthy percentages of both you know of, of women and people of color across the company. You know, I, I pay obviously very close attention to the engineering team, but you know, really across the company. We recognize the problem from having worked at bigger companies. And while we were still 12 or 15 people, like we can we can move the percentages materially now with really small whole numbers. So let's go do that and make sure that, you know, the next, that, you know, that, that in each round of hiring, we're constantly thinking about this or one day we're going to wake up and realize that the problem's unsolved. Let's, let's double back and talk about scalability. So you talked about that when you talked about the MVP and said you kind of, you built it in a scalable way from the beginning, at least in the sense of programmable infrastructure, but dive into that a little more. How did you, how did you decide to do that and, and a little more detail on, and how you went about that process? The thing that I, I, I was very sensitive to making sure that we, we kind of, you know, kept as a, as a first principle was just, once you have some manual process in place that you're able to make work, you know, you've already got somebody who knows how to do that, who knows how to push those buttons. And it will always seem like a project that can be pushed down the road to later to come back and automate that. If you allow something as critical and core as, you know, being able to push out your, push, push out your infrastructure and trust that it, it's been released and it's operating successfully and, and know that it's one of those things that you'll likely just never do. That, that was the DNA that we wanted to instill. And like, you're probably paying a, you know, 10% cost or something like that on every feature you build to maintain that, that invariant, but it doesn't feel, you know, you don't feel that tax if you just kind of make it part of the acceptance criteria of like, this is what done looks like. Done looks like we can automate the release process fully and no person has to be involved in doing any manual operations. And then as you scale up, you know, you continue paying those, those, those small taxes to automate it, but it doesn't become, it doesn't feel like a, like a, like a bird. It doesn't feel like something you have to go negotiate for more. And the benefit we get from that is, you know, right now today in 2020, we have zero people who are tasked with doing kind of any operational maintenance of, of the site. Maybe that's not a fair characterization of it. We have a handful of engineers who certainly specialize in this point of the stack, but the key is that they are never going to be the people who say, okay, it's time for you to go do this weekly or monthly maintenance operation of releasing the site. They're there to write code to produce tools that allow the developers who are building features to self-manage, getting their things into production, and then participating in our fully automated pipeline. 
if you have to go do something somewhat manual as a one-off job one or two times to learn what it is so you can automate it, fine. But if you ever start to see a trend where this operation is something that's becoming a job, take it away, you know, stop it being a job and turn it into your job is to build an automated robot to handle it. Like any software, you know, software running operationally, we have, you know, potential platform issues. We have, you know, alerts that go off when, when things aren't working right and somebody has to dig in on that. And so we have a shared pager duty, you know, responsibility across the engineering team. Folks have a rotation where when the system detects anomalies and, and fires alarms, somebody is is on duty to respond to that, assess the the risk and you know, and either deal with it, escalate it, or or de-escalate it if it if it if it's a non-issue. And, and you know the, the goal of doing something like that, the goal of having engineered managed operations is those should be the same people who are empowered to minimize the amount and severity of those issues. You know, no one wants to get woken up at 2 a.m. to deal with an issue. And so the, the best people to wake up at 2 a.m. are the people who are empowered to make the code more robust so it doesn't wake you up at 2 a.m. and make it more resilient so that we truly only get woken up for things that are kind of environmental and outside of our control. 90% of the time, it seems that the things that happen are, you know, network anomalies and problems related to upstream services that, you know, we don't have a lot of control over and all we can do is kind of contain it and manage it. One quick story to add on this too, it, we went through a process of becoming SOC 2 audited. One of the challenges when you're kind of going through that process of mapping all your controls and things is that, you know, you do have to have a fairly rigorous multi-step approval process for releasing your software where you know the people who are coding features have those features reviewed by someone who didn't code them to you know kind of make sure that no one no one bad actor can actually release things into an environment that could you know be ad adversarial code and you know things like that there was a fully automated release script that anytime somebody wanted to execute a release they could go run and there was some angst that we might lose that capability and you know what ended up happening through the through the process of dealing with this SOC uh, this, this, these SOC constraints is that one of our engineers who does focus on the kind of engineering and infrastructure took that initial automated process for for pushing software releases, uh, rebuilt it into a Slack integration. And so what ended up happening is we got kind of all the auditability we wanted, and actually this, the, the release process got more streamlined. Where when any engineer wants to request a, a, a release, they go into a Slack channel, they fire the Slack integration, it brings up all of the you know most recently built uh, releases that could potentially get pushed out. Uh, you, they select from that menu which one they want to release. That then automatically tags and alerts everyone on the management team who's capable of approving the release. As long as one of them comes back with a you know thumbs up emoji approving that that post, the release is, is scheduled and able to get released. All that all that kind of summed up to you know a more streamlined process. You know we release multiple times a day with this coordinated process, and we have exactly the audit trail we need by pulling it off of the Slack logs. It, it, that mentality of you know, making everything as automated as possible really, really generates, you know, just serendipities like this that actually, by, by complying with these soft controls, we actually made everyone's life a little bit better. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built with data.world, what are you most proud of? Well, I mean, I'd have to say, you know, I think probably a lot of people say, say some version of this. I'll try to be more, more specific, but I, I'd have to say, you know, the team, and the and the company culture. I mean, I'm you know, I am super proud of the product. I think we're doing some really innovative things. 
but when you're building a startup and scaling it up, it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. And you know, having the right team and the right you know kind of company culture where everyone knows that they kind of have each other's back, they have their best interests in heart, that you know there's a there's a true genuine kind of desire to have everyone along for the journey and really kind of fully participating. That you know matters more than any any particular piece of the technology, piece of the product, or you know even kind of you know, piece of the business. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. So, you know, one thing that uh, you know when you're building something from scratch, when you're starting, you're know, starting a new thing, but you kind of have a, a good sense that if the thing you're building is going to um, is going to be successful at all. It's going to grow very large, very quickly. You know, you kind of have to, you have, you have to, you're always juggling with that. I mean, I think every startup's juggling with that to some degree. You know, there's the, you want to build the the smallest, simplest thing that will work and kind of get to the next proof point. And that's a lot of what's doing a startup is. But there, it also kind of comes with the judgment of you want to, you want to make sure that you're building technology, building things that will be able to scale when it's time that's a balancing act. I think, you know, when you're, when you're starting a new startup, you certainly should be thinking, biasing heavily toward what's the quickest thing I can do to kind of get this out and get tested in the market. But there is an element of how much am I architecting for this to scale? I, I think we've made those decisions largely pretty well, but I'd say there was a couple of things in the first six months of launching data.world that were designed to protect us in the event that we hyperscaled and that were useful to us as we did kind of scale very quickly and that in, in our in our the community growth and get you know hundreds of thousands of users pretty quickly but that maybe baked us into some technology decisions ahead of where the product actually needed them to go you know how did we how we've dealt with it is I think you know to some degree it's just you know it's like it's like any tech deck. There are there are some aspects of the platform that were decided on insufficient information. The, the biggest thing you can do with those kind of like early day decisions is just own them, acknowledge them, make it very clear that, you know, this is the way it is for reasons that were good at the time, but that everyone who's, you know, in there touching the code, touching the product today is empowered to, you know, revisit those decisions and make it better. Every once in a while, some new engineer who's been at the company for a month or so will be digging around the code and say, geez, I just saw X and this looks really weird. Why would somebody do it this way? But I'm scared to touch it. I, I definitely, you know, my fingerprints are sometimes on those things saying, oh, I know exactly why that is the way it is. Here's what I was thinking five years ago. That turned out to be the wrong decision. You should absolutely feel free to rip that out and replace it. That's not there for any good reason that, that matters to us today. You know, nothing safe there. You know, there's no sacred cows. There's nothing. There, there's nothing about this about the system that should stay the way it is just because it is the way it is. You know, and it doesn't matter who's who who implemented that. If you see a way to make it better, make sure that you're feeling empowered to make it better. What does the future look like for Data.World, the product, and for your team? So, you know, the near-term future for us is, you know, really we are just in that. In that you know, growing and uh, growing in the market phase, we, we we have found our rhythm. We're doing you know, we, we're expanding to new customers, expanding our relationship with existing customers. You know, really having 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 a great feedback loop with a good solid customer base that, to understand 
what works and what doesn't and, and what, what, their, what their needs are. You know, we've never had the problem of not having a good idea of what to do next. We, I think like a lot of startups, have the problem of too many great ideas of what to do next. We've got a huge palette of things that we know might have value in this market. And so we're at that, we're at that, that phase where we are getting tons of fantastic feedback from existing customers around what, what of those actually are the most important things, what are the things that do add real value. So it is, it is about continuing to grow the relationship with those customers, making them happier by taking their feedback into account, growing the, growing the customer base, and then you know, just making sure that we're kind of growing the company and keeping the, the, the company culture strong as we, as we grow. You know, we're, we're at about around 80 people. We've, we've actually grown substantially during COVID so that there's you know, quite a number of people who have never actually been in a in our physical office space with us who are who are with the company so that that's kind of had its own challenges and you know we're just we're at that stage of of company where where you know it's really we just have to be really kind of vigilant about maintaining the 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 company culture as we are growing the business let's switch to you brian who influences the way that you work you know it could be ceo cto really any person Name a person you look up to and why. I will. I will. I will say, you know, previous boss of mine, the person I worked for at HomeAway, he was the CTO there. His name's Ross Bergdorf, and he's, he's he's now the CEO of a company called Zen Business. I learned a, a lot from Ross. One thing that that really kind of stands out to me during my time at HomeAway, I was kind of making. The transition from being someone who was, you know, primarily an individual contributor, primarily somebody who was writing code, architect, you know, do, doing hands-on individual contributor work, and, and and less involved in in management and 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 leadership. You know, I made the transition there, and I credit Ross a lot with that. And I think, you know, as I I, I think a lot of people as they get more senior in their career kind of struggle with that. Like, do I want to, am I somebody who, you know, wants to be a very senior individual contributor, which there certainly is a career path for. That's a thing that, you know, do Do I want to go into management? How do I kind of make those decisions? And and I think I would have characterized myself as someone who, uh, you know, was leaning towards staying in, uh, in, in, you know, as an individual contributor, but something that, you know, Ross at one point kind of, you know, framed it out for me a little bit. He's like, well, the way you act, Brian, like is, you know, you actually, you want to, to be involved in the decision-making. Like you, you actually, you have a good, you know, you have a good strategic mind. You often have the right way of doing things in mind. The difference is like, it's actually real work to then go commit to a course of action, go organize other people, motivate other people and make it happen. Ultimately, the people who get to make the decisions are the people who are willing to do that, right? It's like it was kind, of, and it was kind of like a you know, leadership isn't what you think it is necessarily when you kind of look at it from the lens of somebody who's an who's who's you know primarily an individual contributor. It's it's not it, it's not enough just to be smart and know the right thing to do. It's to you know then actually go do the work of making the thing happen, and that's and and. and yeah, if you want to be if you want to be involved in the decision making at the at, at that level, you you kind of have to you know figure out how you how you do the other thing. And there's a and you know the other thing is there's a lot of different styles for how you how you can kind of do that 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 leadership how, how you can how you can lead people and organize people to accomplish things. And he's like you, you know 
you you will probably be very successful at that if you if you uh, if you just embrace the idea that like the reason I'm doing this is is because I like to be kind of directly involved and responsible and therefore accountable with with the kinds of, with the decisions that are getting made and you know your preconceived notions of what it's like to be a manager or a leader are probably wrong if you go into that with the right intention you can actually find a way to make a network with your style I, I learned a lot from Ross but if I could summarize it that would be the, that would be the best way I can summarize it well we talked about mistakes but if you could go back to the beginning a little you know a little bit different spin if you could go back to the beginning what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach I don't actually know that I would go back and do anything differently you know I kind of mentioned you know Ross's influence in the last question you asked me and I you know I think I think I spent a long time not really knowing what I wanted to do I was a technologist I was a developer I enjoyed advancing my career there building my skills there like many folks I think I kind of got frustrated with the way that you know quote management did things but I was unwilling to kind of step into the ring and you know be part part of the part of the solution there myself I, I went through the experiences I went through that kind of you know put me in a in a headspace I, I think I was fortunate to kind of be in a receptive enough headspace with the somebody who was you know there to mentor me in the right direction at the right time that that kind of changed my trajectory a little bit it would be nice to think that I could have come to some of those realizations earlier but I don't yeah I, I don't know that there's anything that could have I don't I don't know that that's possible I think maybe I just kind of had to take the journey I took and be in the place I was at the right time last question Brian so you're getting on a plane and And you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I would ask them, where do you see this next big thing five years from now, 10 years from now? Where do you see it evolving? What do you see it becoming? What do you see your relationship to it being? You know whatever answer you have for that it's surely wrong but I think that you know thinking about that like if you know, you you know you need to kind of have that picture which should be constantly evolving with new information but you need to have that picture that North Star in your head because if you're doing it right you know this entre- entrepreneurship's usually somewhat of a, of a long journey right it's yeah you know, I think a lot a lot of times you folks kind of think of the like you know I'm gonna be in this for a short period of time and then on to the next thing and I, you know I think if you're if you're building something if you're bringing something like you know truly new and and worthwhile and interesting into the world you probably have a vision for what that thing is going to be when it's all grown up if you keep that in mind if you have that you know so that'd be the, the question I'd ask the my you know my seatmate on the plane is you know that's great show me what you have now and But like what is it going to be when it's all grown up and mature what are you going to be doing with this thing five or ten years from now that's the thing that you're kind of constantly steering toward and and, and, and that will change yeah but 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 it's the having having that in mind gives you a direction that's a fantastic question to ask and, and advice well Brian 
thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for being on Code Story and telling the creation story of Data.World. Thank you. It was a great conversation. I appreciate the time. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>